0: So John 19, and as you can see on the screen, we are set to cover uh, quite a large portion of text this morning, and we're trying to get through the Gospel of John before the summer uh, and, uh, in which time we're, we're going to be leaving. So want to get through this amazing Gospel. There's a lot here, and uh, I was telling Meme, it's, uh, it's almost torture to uh, try to skip this fast through it, but uh, we're going to try to hit some of the main points, but buckle up. We're going to go go fast this morning. So last week, we concluded um, Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, which ended in Christ being sentenced to crucifixion. And after being sentenced, Pilate then hands Jesus over to the Roman soldiers where he's taken out to be crucified. And so that's what we're going to be picking up this morning in, in verse 16, the event of Christ's crucifixion. And in these verses, John not only wants to teach us about what happens to Christ while on the cross, but about the significance of those events and what they teach us about Jesus. And so as we come to this scene this morning, it's it's important that we first be aware of our familiarity with this story and not let familiarity breed contempt. And also we need to be aware of the way we tend to think of crucifixion. I think all of us are quite used to to, talking about crucifixion. We talk a lot about the cross, right? We sing about the cross. We hear sermons on the cross. We read books about the cross. You wear crosses as jewelry. We use crosses for decorations. You might even have a picture of a cross at at your home. There's a sense in which that's very appropriate, right? The cross is at the center of the gospel. Paul called his gospel the word of the cross, right? But this familiarity with the cross can also m- make us miss how shocking the message of the gospel really is and how shocking it was to the first century believers. The cross was one of the most brutal instruments of torture. An execution ever invented, and the Romans perfected it. It was reserved for the lowest and vilest in society, for, for slaves, robbers, traitors. A Roman citizen was exempt from crucifixion. He could not be crucified except from a decree directly from Caesar himself. And after being severely beaten, a person would been, then be nailed, or tied to a cross, in which they would agonize in excruciating pain and the struggle to stay alive. Relaxing the muscles would cause a person to fall forward and restricting his airflow and causing him to be unable to breathe. And so, what they would do is they would push up on the the nails and the in their hands and their feet to catch a breath, but that would cause shooting, excruciating pain, and this process would go on for for hours, sometimes even days. Um. And it would eventually end as the, the victim dies of suffocation. And on top of this, the victim was crucified naked in utter shame and disgrace, and it took place in a public place to be a warning and a deterrent to the masses that they not commit the same crime. And if that were not enough, while hanging on the cross, the victim would suffer the torment of flies and birds and wild animals picking at his flesh. And, and after death, the criminal would often be left on the cross to rot and decay uh, for days after his death. Historians tell us of crucifixions performed by the Romans in which thousands were crucified at the same time. It was horrendous, and everybody knew it. That's how people thought of the cross. It was the most feared thing a person at this time could be confronted with. And for Jews at this time, not only was crucifixion associated with shame and defeat and horrendous suffering and disgrace, it was also associated with God's curses and God's judgment. Deuteronomy 21 tells us that a hanged man is cursed by God. And so, for people in the first century, the cross meant nothing other than the lowest, most horrendous form of execution for the absolutely worst and lowest in society. Some Roman writers, like Cicero, even said that the cross shouldn't even be mentioned by respectable Roman citizens. You weren't even to talk about it. And especially to the Jews, one hanged on a cross was certainly under God's judgment and his curse. There was not the slightest notion of glory or celebration or singing about it. That would have been contradictory in the highest sense of the term. That is what crucifixion meant to those in the first century. That is how John's readers would have been thinking about our passage. That's why this passage is so important. This morning, John has written this gospel to demonstrate that Jesus is none other than the Messiah, right? Jesus, who was crucified. And in our passage this morning, the primary question John is going to seek to answer is if Jesus is really the Messiah, then why was he crucified? Doesn't the fact of Christ's crucifixion give evidence that he was under God's curse and not the Messiah? How could a crucified man, condemned as one of the worst of criminals and judged by God, possibly be the messiah that is what john is addressing this morning and so this morning we will be looking at john chapter 19 verses 16 to 42 in which we will learn about the crucifixion and burial of the true david passover lamb and pierced messiah And the point John will be making is that Jesus' crucifixion and all the events that surrounded his crucifixion, far from testifying against his messiahship, actually proclaim loud and clear that he is none other than the promised Messiah. John's still on track with with the purpose of his gospel. What is it? These things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And the majority of the text in our passage is not devoted to outlining the details of Christ's sufferings. We talked about that last week, but it's about the fulfillment of scripture in his sufferings and how what happens to him is exactly what we should expect to happen to the Messiah. And there's more because his cross not only authenticates him as Messiah, but through the cross, Christ was triumphing and accomplishing the complete redemption of his people. As the true king. So let's look. We're going to look at the crucifixion of Christ and then we will conclude very quickly with the burial of Christ. So in verses 16 to 37, we get the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the identification of Jesus as the true Messiah. And the scene begins in verses 16 to 22 by telling us that with this setting of Christ's crucifixion, which proclaims his. Messiahship. So look at verse 16 with me. So he delivered him over to them, that is the soldiers, to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So soldiers here take Jesus after he is sentenced, and this is where Jesus would have received the severe beating, which we talked about last week, the verberatio in Latin. Um, it's when he would have been beaten to a, to a bloody pulp. And then he's given the crossbeam, which he would have carried out to the place of execution, just outside the city and he would have been hoisted up on that cross beam to a vertical beam that was already established in the ground there. And I think what John wants us to see in these verses is what he's been emphasizing throughout his whole gospel is the perfect obedience and submission of Christ. I mean, just just look at the verses. They took Jesus and he went out bearing his cross. Perfect submission to his mission, which was given to him. No fight, no struggle, no resisting, just complete submission to the father going to the worst suffering possible. And he's led out to a hill outside of the city where all crucifixions were performed. And the hill's called Golgotha, meaning the place of the skull. And he's crucified between two others. The other Gospels tell us that these men were robbers or insurrectionists. They were guerrilla warriors, enemies of the Roman Empire, just like Barabbas that we saw in the previous passage. And and I think John here probably wants us to pick up on another allusion back to Isaiah 53. The servant king, we are told, was numbered with the transgressors. The innocent servant king would die as a substitute for his people. And as such, he would be condemned along with transgressors, people who were guilty of crimes that he was not guilty of. That's exactly what's going on here. He was not a Roman insurrectionist. But he's crucified with them, as though bearing the same punishment of them, suffering the punishment that they and we deserve. And that's what he is doing here Well, John now continues to describe this setting of Christ's crucifixion by by telling us next about this, this placard which Pilate wrote and hung on Christ's cross. Look at verse 20. Many of the Jews, I'm sorry, verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So it was customary that the crime of a convicted criminal was written on a, on a tablet or a, a placard, and it would be hung around his neck during the time that he's carrying the cross out to his crucifixion, so everybody could see just what he is going out to be crucified for. And then once there, it would be fastened above, above his head, and it was meant to be a warning and a deterrent to the masses not to commit the same crime. Crucifixions often took place right beside the major roadways where lots of people would be, and that's exactly what our passage tells us here. John says it was also written in three languages, Aramaic, the language of Israel, Greek that have been the lingua franca of the Roman world, the common language, and Latin, the language of the Roman soldiers. So Pilate is essentially saying, he's putting this here so all the people of Israel can look up and see it and essentially to the whole world saying, "Behold the fate of anyone who claims to be king as opposed to Caesar. And Pilate uses this as one final opportunity to mock the Jews and to show the power of Rome over any Jewish king. And it's almost as if he's saying, this is the only kind of king you Jews will ever have, a crucified one. And yet, in even more irony, right? Pilate writes a message better than he realizes. For Jesus is the true king of the Jews. And he is triumphing in his cross as the king. And just as the message was written in three languages, the message of Christ's kingship and crucifixion is a message for the whole world, John is telling us. Well, the Jewish leaders don't like this very much. They asked Pilate to change the inscription to indicate that Jesus was just a pretender. He was not really their king. But Pilate won't back down from an opportunity to to humiliate the Jews. And, And so in God's providence, it stays written just how he wrote it. The reason Jesus is crucified is because he really is the king of the Jews. And that's what is being proclaimed here. One commentator wrote this. The crucified one is the true king of all. Because it is he who is stretched on the cross, he turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree. John is telling us here that Christ was crucified as the obedient son, the suffering servant, the true king of the Jews. The wretched cross becomes his throne of glory from which he reigns to save his people and set up his kingdom. And that's a message for the whole world, John says. So that's the setting of Christ's crucifixion and how it sets the stage to proclaim Christ's messiahship but now we come to verses twenty three to thirty seven. The fulfillment of Scripture at the cross of Christ testifies to his Messiahship. And this is by far the largest of the sections. And it's held together by this theme of fulfillment that runs through through all the verses. And in it we're going to receive four Old Testament quotations or allusions, which demonstrate that what Christ experiences is exactly what the Old Testament anticipated. What happened to the Messiah? It's actually what authenticates him, and it's from his cross and sufferings that we're going to see he becomes the very source of life and salvation for all of his people. So let's look at these one at a time. First, Christ is identified as the ultimate Davidic king in verses 23 to 24. Verse 23. So we discover here that four soldiers were involved in Christ's crucifixion. And part of the crucifixion, the process, was the stripping of the criminal, the very last of his possessions, which were his clothes, and then hanging a naked victim in a public place as a form of utmost humiliation. And here the soldiers divide his clothing up between the four of them. So the the clothing probably included his robe, his belt, his sandals and a headpiece, and it would have been divided to each of the soldiers. But Jesus also had a tunic, we're told. Now a tunic was a common piece of clothing at that at that time. It was a long undergarment worn next to the skin under the under the robe. And John tells us that it was seamless. It was woven from, from one piece. So the only way then to divide this tunic up between the four soldiers is either by ripping it into four pieces But if you do that, the whole thing will be ruined and it would be worthless. And so instead, they gamble for it to decide whose it's going to be. But John says that they did that so that scripture might be fulfilled. Now, that's a purpose clause. They did that so that scripture would be fulfilled. Now, whose purpose is that? What obviously wasn't the Roman soldier's purpose, right? They're clueless of the Old Testament. They're clueless of any idea that this man is Messiah or what Messiah is. They have no intent to fulfill scripture. But this is God's purpose in and through their action. Throughout this chapter, the, the providence of God is just woven through everything. God's plan is continually being fulfilled And what unwitting participants do. Look at the end of verse 24. It says, so the soldiers did these things. John is saying that these things the soldiers did were primarily because it was written. Even though they were ignorant under God's supervision, they were unwittingly fulfilling his very plan and purpose. So what is that plan? What is the fulfillment? Well, look at verse 24. This was to fill the scripture. Well, which scripture? Well, Specifically, Psalm 22, 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, to give us a better grasp on what John means by these things fulfilled scripture, we need to think back to Psalm 22 in in, in general, and we don't have time to go there. I wish we did. But we need to understand the original context of that psalm. This is a psalm of David. And it's a lament of an innocent sufferer, the Davidic king, who is rejected and afflicted by his enemies. And yet he is faithfully trusting in the Lord for his vindication and deliverance. And David, in this psalm, uses this symbolism of of an execution scene with his hands and feet being pierced, in verse 16, and his clothing being divided up between his enemies to to highlight his suffering and his sense of abandonment. This psalm begins with David saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels forsaken and abandoned by God. And yet he remains dependent on God for his vindication. Now, in one sense, this is a psalm about David's experiences. It is not a straightforward prediction of things that are going to happen in the future. On one level, David has simply given himself as a model of an innocent sufferer for Israel. And yet, on another hand, there was the promise that one day God would send a final Davidic king. If you've been with us in the equipping classes to hear Tim teach through this, you would know exactly the implications. The true David, one of David's heirs, would come and be the one to fulfill all of God's promises, to restore all of God's creation purposes. And this psalm sets the expectation for that greater David, that when he comes, he would be treated no differently than David himself was treated. In other words, the major contours of the life of David become the pattern. You could say they're, they're the type of the greater David who is to come. If David suffered this way, the logic goes, how much more will the greater David, the final, the ultimate David, suffer in this way? And more than that, David in this psalm uses hyperbole, exaggerated language. Obviously, David's feet weren't really pierced and his hands weren't really pierced. He wasn't executed. So there's this this exaggerated language in this psalm which causes us to look forward to the fulfillment of it in a greater, final Davidic king. And so in our text, John is demonstrating that what Jesus suffers is in perfect alignment with the experiences of David and fits perfectly the expectations of what would happen to the great David. And what's amazing is that both lines of chapter 22, verse 18 are fulfilled. They divide Christ's garments and they cast lots for them. Both of them are fulfilled in what they do to Jesus, In other words, Jesus' sufferings do not discount him, but they actually authenticate him. He's the greater David, and he experiences the same sufferings of of David, and sufferings that went beyond anything, actually, that David himself experienced. So that's the first thing John draws our attention to. Christ is identified as the ultimate Davidic king. Next, Christ is identified as a righteous son and the creator of a new family of disciples. Look at verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So John now shifts the scene from focusing on the soldiers to focusing on some women at the cross. Four of them, one of them including Jesus' mother. And these women were all faithful disciples of Christ. It's very possible that one of these women, or some of them, made the very clothes that were being gambled off to the soldiers. They're set in complete contrast with these soldiers. They're faithful disciples of Christ. We discover that the disciple whom Jesus loved was also there, most likely a reference to the apostle John who's writing this gospel. And at the last hour of Jesus' life, while suffering on the cross, Jesus cares for his mother. Isn't that interesting? Mary was most likely a widow at this point, and Jesus was most likely the one who cared for her. His brothers are still unbelievers at this point and we don't hear much about them. And so in fulfillment of the law to honor one's father and mother, Jesus makes sure she would be cared for. And he identifies his disciple, John, to her. He says, behold your son. He points her to John. And he identifies his mother as the mother of his disciple. He says to John, behold your mother. And he assigns John with the task of caring for his mother. And that's what John does immediately, we are told. Now, these verses are really interesting. I I wrestled with this. Why stick this in here, John? You got all these passages about fulfillment. Why put this here? I can think of a couple reasons. I think it's to highlight the righteousness and perfection of Christ. I like how D.A. Carson put it here. He said, it is wonderful to remember that as he hung dying on a Roman cross, suffering as the Lamb of God, he took thought of and made provision for his mother. He was not only completely obedient to his father in the cross, but completely and perfectly related to others, including honoring his mother to the very end. I think John might also be doing something else here. He notice he calls her woman. That's what he called her back in chapter two. Now the word woman—it's not disrespectful. It, it 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 could be quite polite, sort of like our idea of ma'am. Okay, but it's also not something you would normally say to your mother. It implies some distance. And he said this back in chapter 2 to his mother. He called her woman in order to emphasize that while on earth, his prerogatives are the mission of the father. His mother does not set the agenda for his mission. It was to imply distance. And I think he's doing something similar here. He calls her woman as if to say the primary relationship she will have with Christ now, after the cross, is not as a mother, but as a disciple. You don't get into Christ through some back door, through family relationship or any other way. She's a disciple just like all the others. As Christ dies on the cross, his disciples are now made into a new family. She'll be the mother of a disciple and a disciple, a son to her. It's a picture of this new family that's forming from Christ's cross. It's very similar to what we read in Mark 10, 29. She said, truly, there's no one who's left houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, presumably through the church. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands. So I think John includes this here to reveal the kind of community that was being created through Christ's cross. It's another one of the effects of his of his cross but that's not all. John goes on now, verses 28 to 30, to show us how Christ is identified as the obedient son and the ultimate Davidic king again, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge of the sour wine, full of the sour wine, on a on a hyssop branch, and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So these verses now take us to the very moment of Christ's death, where Jesus says, I thirst. Now, thirst was a common part of suffering experienced on on the cross. It highlights the, the humanity of Christ and the depths of his suffering. But John tells us that Jesus said this in order to fulfill scripture. And again, the point here is the perfect obedience of Christ. While on the cross, he's still concerned with obeying the Father and fulfilling scripture. So how does this fulfill scripture? Well, the words, I thirst, are not a quotation from anywhere in the Old Testament, And they're not themselves a fulfillment of scripture. What fulfills scripture is what Jesus is given in response to his thirst. Verse 29 tells us that the soldiers gave him sour wine. Now, what is sour wine? Sour wine was like a cheap vinegar-like wine that was often drunk as a common drink by the soldiers. And it was often left there at crucifixion in order to give to the victims hanging on the cross, not as a way to comfort them, but as a way to prolong their life and thereby prolong their agony and suffering. And that's what it was used for. And and Jesus says, I thirst here because he knows that they're going to give it to him. And when they do, it will again fulfill scripture. Well, how so? Well, Psalm twenty-nine, twenty-one, to be specific, another Psalm of David. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine. Same word in Greek. Much like Psalm 22, in the way it describes David's sufferings, which are here fulfilled by the greater David, his enemies give him sour wine to drink as a way of intensifying his sufferings. So the point again is the similarities between Christ and and David, authenticating him as the greater David. John also tells us that Jesus said, I thirst, look at verse 28 again, He said, I thirst because he knew that all things had already been accomplished. So because he's known, everything's accomplished now. While on the cross, death's impending. That's why he says, I thirst. So what is the all things here? What does it mean? All things have been finished. John 17, 4, Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished, same word, finished, completed the work that you gave me to do. It refers to the totality of the work the Father gave Christ to accomplish, which culminated in his cross. Christ has accomplished all the Father's work. And now, before his death, Jesus says, I thirst. Well, why? Why? It's not only to fulfill scripture, but it's so that he can make his pronouncement in verse 30. I think when Jesus receives the sour wine, it moistens his lips just enough so he can make his declaration. Look at verse 30. He cries out, it is finished. Same word. Jesus, knowing that all has been finished, cries out, it is finished. That is God's plan of redemption has been accomplished. The mission on which Christ has been sent, which would culminate in his brutal death on the cross, has been accomplished. His cry here is not a cry of defeat, but a cry of triumph and victory. Victory. Through his death, he's triumphed as the king and accomplished everything necessary for our salvation and securing of our eternal life. And with this, he bows his head and gives up his spirit, emphasizing the complete voluntary nature of Christ's death. He is the obedient son and the ultimate Davidic king. Oh, there's so much we could say, but we have to to move on. Verses 31 to 37. Christ is now identified as the ultimate Passover lamb and pierced Messiah. In these verses, John shows us that even after the death of Christ, Scripture continued to be fulfilled. And what happens to Christ here is exactly what Scripture anticipated. And it gives us insight into exactly the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. So let's look at the events really quickly. Verses 31 to 34. water. The normal Roman practice was to leave bodies hanging on the cross for days, to to rot and and decay. But in keeping with Jewish custom, the Jews come and request that the bodies be taken down before sundown. So remember Deuteronomy 21, it said the bodies need to be taken before sundown or it will defile the land. And, And at evening, as soon as sun goes down, Sabbath begins it wasn't just any Sabbath, it was a high day. It was the second day of Passover and a very important day. And, and so as a method to hasten the, the, the death of those crucified, they would break the legs. It would make it impossible for them to push up any longer and catch their breath and they would die quickly of suffocation. But when the soldiers come to Christ, he's already dead and so they don't bother to break his legs. And so, either as an act of brutality or just to ensure Christ is dead, a soldier gets his lance and goes into the side of Christ piercing his heart. And John says immediately, water and blood flow out. Now there's various explanations, medical explanations for what this water and blood is. I won't try to attempt that since we have plenty of medical people in here. But for John, I think he's making a point. The fact that these bodily fluids flowed from Christ's side are evidence of Christ's true humanity and also his death. He was a real man. And he really died. Two things that have often been denied, and John makes it unmistakable. But if John is intending symbolism here, I think the water and the blood represent the cleansing and the life that flow from Christ's sacrifice. All the gifts of salvation flow from Christ's sacrificial death here. We're going to come back to that in just a a moment. Look at verse 25. We get the testimony of, of John sorry, verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. So John has given us eyewitness testimony of the events of Christ's death to help us see how these events fulfill scripture. So John has seen the pure sight of Christ, and as an eyewitness, he has written a truthful record of these events so that we would see it through his eyes and believe rightly in Jesus and because as we do, we receive the benefits of Christ's death as we do it. So that's why John's writing here. and, and So now he gives us the fulfillments. This is what he wants us to see. Not just the event, but how they, what they fulfill. Verses 36 to 37. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. So again, the soldiers are unwitting instruments in God's plan, and they fulfill two more scriptures. And the first is fulfilled as they don't break his legs, and it's an allusion to Exodus 12, 46, about the Passover lamb. It shall be eaten outside. I mean, it shall be eaten at one house. You shall not take any of its flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Christ's death took place on Passover, and his death, not one of his legs were broken to prove that as Messiah, he is the true and final Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In his death, as Messiah, he suffers God's judgment in our place, just as the Passover lamb and provides a new exodus for his people. There's one final fulfillment, though. John directs our attention to Christ's pure sight, and he quotes from Zechariah 12.10. About, he says, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. So much we could say here. We only have a couple more minutes. Say it like this. Zechariah looked forward to a time when there would be a shepherd in Israel, the Messiah who would come, who would be pierced. He would be rejected by his people. He would be pierced through and it would be God's plan and but the day would come when God would give repentance to his people, when they would look on the one that was actually pierced by them, and when by faith they look upon him, they will receive the benefits of his sacrifice, which we get in Zechariah 13.1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. I think John is saying here, what's being fulfilled is not simply the piercing in Christ's side. What's being fulfilled is that John looked upon the piercing and what's being fulfilled is as we look upon Christ being pierced through John's testimony and believe in Christ this promise from Zechariah is being fulfilled we are part of the believing remnant who looks on Christ who is pierced in repentance realizing that was my sin that pierced him it wasn't just the soldier that pierced Christ it was my sin it was every one of us who pierced Christ and as we look upon him by faith, we receive the benefits of his death. There's a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners who pierced him, who are plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That's what's fulfilled. So in these verses, John shows us how Old Testament expectations for a new David a final Passover lamb and a pierced shepherd are fulfilled in Christ. All the benefits he's accomplished, salvation, redemption, substitution, are ours. By recognizing that he's our king, he's our Messiah, submitting to him as our Lord. Recognizing it's my sin that pierced him. And depending on his sacrifice in my place. We have one minute left. John concludes by giving us the burial of Christ, and I'm just going to read this. Here for us as we conclude. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body away. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths, with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Just before sundown, as Sabbath is beginning, and once Sabbath is over on the third day, he'll rise again as the victorious Messiah who has conquered, for all to look upon him. that's where we will pick up again next time. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. What a Savior. What a King. None of us could do it. He fulfilled all righteousness, perfectly obeyed you, and satisfied your judgment in our place. Pierced by our rejection, and our sin, and, And yet doing that for the salvation of the world, that all who would look upon him would have eternal life. Forgiven, cleansed, and brought into your new creation purposes. We love you. Thank you, Father, for Christ. Help us to love him and submit to him as our King and Messiah all our days and live for his glory alone. And it's in his name we ask all these things. Amen.